Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, welcome back, or welcome to Stage Door Johnny. I'm Jonathan Cake, and this is the second part of my conversation with Kenneth Lonigan. Here he is. Stage Door Johnny Company, this is your call for the top of Act Two. Mr. Lonergan and Mr. Cake to the stage, please. Act Two beginners. I want to read you something Matthew said, and I want to ask about the first time you were ever on stage as an actor, because I'm absolutely fascinated by your acting. <laughs> Broderick and Lonergan met on a school production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Is that true? Um, yeah, more or less. Okay. In which Lonergan was cast as Demetrius. Yeah. Nice part. No, it wasn't. It wasn't for me. But I tried. Interesting. Well, it was okay. a magnificent Demetrius. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Not a great part. It's not the greatest. That's not who you want. You don't want to say I'm. What, I'm my dream is to play Demetrius in Midsummer. It goes right. Yeah, I could get Demetrius. Yeah, and Broderick played. This is perhaps even less of a good part. Tom Snout. I have to disagree there. Oh. Tom Snout's a great part. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Snout is the tinker. He plays the wall. He plays the wall. I once snout by name to represent a wall, and such a wall as I would have you think did heaven at a crannied hall or chink, through which the lovers Pyramus and Thisbe did something something. Did me think his? And he had a little, he made a little V with his fingers, and he had a great costume, great wall costume. It was canvas with all sorts of bricks and things on it. It was really good. <laughs> he made a little V for the yeah. chink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already feeling envious on your behalf that he got snout. I didn't notice it was a great part till his mother said so. so. That was such a fun experience. I didn't mind. I mean, I wasn't unhappy being Demetrius, and it was incredible fun to be in that play. My first memory of him, Matthew says, of you, is waiting to go in an audition. And he was telling everybody how to do it. <laughs> that you've got to seem natural. He had a theory about auditioning. Is that how you remember it? I remember it mostly because he likes to tell that story. Right, 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 right. The other thing he says that's really funny, he told this, I think he told this story at my wedding. I don't remember exactly, but or sometime when he was saying something about me in public, if what he said that really made me laugh is that he said, so I said to myself, this is Matthew talking, who is this great man? <laughs> um, I sort of, I remember... I remember being <laughs> waiting outside. I don't. I vaguely remember him being there. It's one of those things your parents tell you enough right. stories about yourself. Yeah, you're a baby, and you don't. You think you remember it. I remember before. Well, this is at Walden, which where I grew up, and then my parents didn't think it was academically sound enough, and they made me go to Dalton for a year. I was desperate to get back, which I did. Matthew arrived in Walden on in ninth grade, the year that I left. So I came back in tenth grade and was hearing all about Matthew Broderick, who's so funny. And I was like, hmm. Who's that? I said to myself. But then we became very, you know, we, we Matthew, a guy named Jared Side, and a guy named Joel Barsky all became very good friends in that production. And we used to go off in the library, which was dark at night when we were doing tech. And we all started a routine where we were the, uh, we were the Godfather, we were cast of the Godfather. 
one of us would be the Don, and one of us would be Michael, and one of us would be Tom Hayden, and one of us would be Sonny. And we would, this, is, this is one thing I really miss about being a kid, is you can just spend hours just having fun making stuff up. I guess that's what we do for a living. kind of what you've spent the rest of your life. Yes, but to no purpose, which is what's so nice about it. We just thought it was funny. So we'd go sit in a table and we just, I don't know what we would do. We'd pretend we were in The Godfather. We also like to shoot each other with, you know, like your fingers like, like that. And we would do these assassinations in the middle of school. And one of us would be assassinated after a, after a week had gone by. Whoever was the Don was, the others had to ambush him secretly and really fool him, and then the three of us alone, and then he had to be alone. It had to be a surprise, so that we were all three assassinated in sequence week after week, and then we could never kill Matthew. (laughs) (laughs) He 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 just kept catching us or sneaking away or running away or something, and then eventually we got bored and went on to something else. It's very good. We had a theater class we all met at 10.30 in the morning, and we told one of our friends to tell Jared, I think it was Jared, who we were assassinating, to go up, that the class was up on the roof. Might have been Joel. So we all waited for him on the roof. There was no one else there, and he came out, and we shot him. There was was the hit. That was great, yeah. Nice. But you act, you've acted in all three of your movies. You've given yourself a part in all three of your movies. You're brilliant in those movies. You really are. And so it begs the question of, you know, you started out acting on stage or doing things on stage where you were writing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Would you ever act in one of your plays on stage? I thought about it. I think I might. I mean, you get very worried about how you're spending your time, but that's been nothing but a big waste for me because I, I worry what I'm going to do with the next year and then I do nothing and I could have been doing all sorts of things. I really liked acting. I have not got any technique to speak of, so I get self-conscious in a very amateurish way. Like, I don't know where to put my hands. I don't mean anything esoteric. I mean, just like you don't understand how... I mean, if I read a part that I can understand, that I relate to, whatever that means, I can do it. If it doesn't seem like me or it doesn't seem like someone I can pretend to be, then I don't have any way to get there. So that's all I mean. Like That's all I mean, but technique. Do you know that Helen Mirren quote? It's very good. They say, which do you prefer, contemporary or period dramas to play on stage. She said, oh, contemporary, she says. And they say, why? She says, pockets. Put your hands in your pockets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I hear my voice as if it was on the radio, you know, right, and, it, right. and I, most actors I know suddenly come to life when they're acting and they feel hidden. They feel protected by the, by the disguise, by the mask. But I feel quite the opposite and I feel very clumsy and awkward and vocally especially. But if it's within my narrow range, I like to do it. Um, do people ever offer you? Theater roles? Very rarely. No, I've never been offered a theater role. I've been offered a couple of film roles. I've done little, little ones. I was in, I was the voice of a doctor in Noah Baumbach's last movie. He's always offering me a part, bless his heart. Both doctors. I was offered a role of a therapist in another one of his films. See, the other thing is, thank God I know enough about movies. It was half a page. I was like, I am not showing up at six in the morning. And spending all day making a fool out of myself in a costume with real actors, which is going to get cut for half a page just to please my ego. But then I am going to be in Steve Zalian's uh, miniseries, Mr. Ripley. So Steve offered me a, a real part, which I actually thought I could do. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, it was, of course, more alarming and difficult than I thought it was going to be. Right. Uh, I told that to Matthew, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah, not so easy, is it? For So I think it'd be fun to be in a play. I do get very self-conscious, but I, I sort of, I do enjoy it if I can do it. Back to your place. You wrote 
these series of extraordinary plays in the span of a very short time, I think. You wrote This Is Our Youth, Waverly Gallery, and Lobby Hero. Yeah. In Spanify? Something like that, yeah. And were parts or thoughts or beginnings of processes about Starry Messenger and Hold On To Me Darling around about that time too or a little bit later? I think probably both Starry Messenger and Hold On To Me Darling started out, I started them even earlier. And another play, my, my medieval play, which yeah. was, which I loved, even though it was not a critical success, but I thought it was, I really, had, I, I loved I, it too. I, I loved it. But I, I think that's the play I had most fun with, although I loved all of them. But anyway, so yes, yeah, I wrote the first scene from Hold On To Me Darling, like country and western play, I think in like late 20s. And then, and then I didn't quite know what to do with it. And Sorry Messenger, I wrote two whole drafts of it in my late 20s, early 30s. It took a very wrong turn, but I always liked the character and the situation, so I threw it all out and started with the three or four scenes that I liked, again, in the in the aughts. Luckily, the ideas that I liked that I couldn't work out seemed to stick with me long enough. I have a couple of other things I'm working on, and some of them, I, a few of them, I've had the idea or then turned on the idea for decades. But that little density of productivity, do you remember what was going on for, for things to feel so... Fecund, is that a terrible word? No, it's a good word. I I was writing all the time. I don't say it's all good, and a lot of it wasn't. I really wrote a lot. When I'm writing now, I still do, even though I'm, I've gotten more cautious and, I, and I'm very slow now. The writing part actually comes out pretty quickly. It's the, I think it's the concern about the overall, and it usually takes about two years to get something to where I like it. But this is even not my first play. It was probably my 15th play. Right. And before that play, I'd written two plays that I really liked and I still like that I'd love to kind of revisit. There are some problems, but I, I think they're really good and probably stage where they are close to it. But they were both very difficult and odd. The form was very unusual. And leaving aside the possibility that they weren't very good, which I, I think they are, when you have no reputation to help you along and people see weird plays, they tend to some blame you for things that they're not getting rather than themselves. And if you just have a little reason to believe that the writer's onto something and to be patient, then whether it's because you saw their last play or because someone's told you they're great or because you learned about them in school, so you're assuming there's something to be gotten from it. But if you're just anonymous and you write something that's a little off or unusual, at least I felt, then it was hard to hard to put it over. But who knows? I mean, I'm disagreeing with myself even as I say it, because I'm talking like Will Arbery, who writes these very weird and interesting plays, and nobody complains about that. Your odd and tricky or, or, or sort of oblique plays started to get this extraordinary attention. So in 1996, uh, This Is Our Youth happened in Tar, by the new group produced. Right, it was Utah, new group produced. That's it. right, with Mark Ruffalo, Josh Hamilton, Missy Yeager. Yeah. Right? And suddenly you have this thing, which did it feel qualitatively different in some way from all of the other plays that you'd written before? Did it feel that opening night in 1996, did that feel like a change in your life in some way? It very much so and very quickly. And it was, I think that's kind of unusual that you have one, I mean, it's unusual and lucky to have one play that really pushes you into a, the next level professionally, the way you're perceived. I didn't think it made a change creatively. All the not-for-profit theaters that I was trying to get my plays into suddenly wanted my plays and I'd, I'd given up submitting them to them. Um, and if the new group hadn't done the play, I don't know quite what would have happened. But after lots of years of trying, 
to get full productions because I had lots of readings and I had one act plays done at Naked Angels where I was a member. Yeah. Uh, Scott Elliott did, it was the new group's third play. Mark Brokaw directed it and just was one of those things that synthesized and people really liked it and I think it was really good. And then suddenly everything changed for me, not just then, but in film too. You Can Count On Me was, was something I was writing at the time and I had no trouble getting that done because people was like, this is our youth. So it was a miracle. But I will say, I mean, I've been writing full-length plays every year since college, I would say, and none of them were produced, almost none of them. One, one production of a play, I did a comedy called The Suffering Colonel, which Matthew directed it at Naked Angels, which we did a workshop that he, he did beautifully, which was really good. And then we did a full production, which became very unwieldy. It was not anybody's fault, but it just cut kind of weighed down. It didn't, didn't work as well. And the play itself was flawed, but I never had a full production. I was just trying to get them one after another and never getting anywhere. I think the first play I wrote that I thought was good was about five years, six years before that. And then the two plays that I really liked that I mentioned were somewhere in there. And then this, and they were Waverly Galley first, and, but then these, This Is Our Youth was produced first. So Waverly Galley was kind of ready to go. But yeah, it was about five years. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I was, feel like I was very lucky in a way, but I had been working very hard. Do you remember that night, the opening night? Yeah, very well, vividly. Could you watch? What do you like? Oh, I watch. Yeah, no, I, I like to watch uh, my plays when they're being performed, and I like the way they're being performed. They're like, painful, and they're not, but usually they have been. But yeah, I remember it vividly. That business of being ignored or oh, ignored is, is not quite right, because I mean, you were very busy and productive with work in Naked Angels, and you were writing all this stuff. But what you just said about writing oblique plays, which is to say writing writing plays, writing, yeah, writing the, good plays. Well, they weren't so great, all of them. I liked them when I was writing them, and then a year later I would read them and I would think they weren't so good. So the first play that wasn't true of were the, where there was a play I wrote called Nice Jewish Boy with Roach Poison about an exterminator. That wasn't my title. My then girlfriend got her apartment sprayed for roaches, and the guy who showed up, his van said, Nice Jewish Boy with Roach Poison. And he was a rather bitter fellow, and I thought, oh, so I wrote a play about an exterminator who wasn't happy with his plot in life. And that play, I think, was a big step forward. And that was Matthew's mother, who was my mentor, said that was the first play I wrote that she thought was like a solid good play. Yeah. You know, it took a long time. I had one X that I still like and that I think came out well, but his falling plays are, are different. Yeah, so I, that was the first time I liked something like the year after and the year after that. Now I don't even think it's so great, but at the time it was a, it was a difference. Do you carry anything of those years, after all this extraordinary success you've had, is it ever easy to get past that initial pushing at a door that wouldn't open? Well, you know, you sort of forget about that. You know, this is this is long ago. I write. I've had a functional career for a long time, and then a fancy career. You know, yes. even that for a fairly long time now. So, but I'm, I don't. So I don't think of those years as a terrible struggle. Right. But it was very frustrating. I was lucky in that I, I had great confidence in my myself, my ability to write, um, that I was able to separate pretty well from how I was doing professionally, right. rightly or wrongly, that it was helpful to yeah. have some confidence in myself, even if it was hard to get things done. And no, but I remember at some point in my late 20s, I thought if this doesn't start to go better, I might think about doing something else. <laughs> I, I thought maybe I'll give it another few years and see. I was sort of at a level, I was doing stuff at Naked Angels, nobody wanted to produce my plays. But nowadays, there's a bit more of a conduit. There are theater schools and writing schools that are conducted by, you know, Juilliard and NYU. There are other places where it, once you're doing work there, you you have a 
the the way towards the professional world is more open. It's it's more integrated. Yeah. At the time, really wasn't true. Once I graduated from NYU, the only I had nowhere to go except for a couple of friends who were in this theater company, Naked Angels, and I'd know where to go to make a living. But it doesn't feel like a terrible struggle. I also right. knew I was young and that it takes time and all that. Mm, it was frustrating, though. I'd really work on these readings, and Matthew was a huge star at the time right away. And Oof. so I'd try to get him to be in my readings and try to get people to come, and it just didn't work that way. Nobody wanted to do a play off of a reading you put together by yourself. That just didn't happen. So it's always who you know. And I only got the play done at the new group because an actress who was working in the literary department there was married to a friend of mine, read the play and gave it to Scott Elliott on the top of the pile of plays. And if, uh, otherwise it would have just gone back to me and thank you, this was wonderful. Jesus, the sliding doors versions of our lives. But I, it's impossible to me for me to believe that, that you wouldn't have found the audience that you did. Most people I know in show business who have a career who stick with it and don't get diverted or frustrated, which there's no reason not to be. For 10 years, you're not making a living, you no one's casting you or doing your play. Perfectly reasonable to do something that's more fulfilling or remunerative. But most people I know who stick with it, and particularly if they're careful about trying to improve their work, they get somewhere. They might not get exactly where they want to, but I know some writers who I didn't think were so great and they when they started and they just wrote and wrote and wrote yeah. and wrote and then they eventually five ten years later someone they knew was in an office somewhere and I tell everyone every kid I know who asked me about what their careers that I never got a job for 10 years that wasn't through someone I knew it's just the way it is it's not even that ter I mean it's a reasonable thing you you have you're reading a stack of plays and your friend's play is on top and you have to read that one so that is just how it is listen this might be painful for me sure to say to you tell you why I love your writing. This might be very difficult. Okay. Uh, I, I hope it isn't. We'll see. But as much I could say and have said to you over slightly drunken moments after seeing some of your plays but and your movies, but the thing I suppose I, I really find extraordinary is the sense that if you feel like the sort of the poet laureate of uncertainty and, and, and even saying that is sort of a glib reduction of everything because as you talk about with with adolescents there are these also these extraordinary uh, 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 shafts of light in your work that feel more like certainty and more like a better type of certainty what you do and what you how you write is a complicated thing to distill but I know that I then countless others feel the same way you recognize something of the mess of real life about the contradictions of real life the difficulties the uncertainties and one of the things I wanted to ask you was, do you think it's becoming harder? Are we in a moment politically where that kind of complication, difficulty, uncertainty is becoming less palatable? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I doubt it. Look at the 60s. If you listen to know, archival footage of conservative, everyday conservative people talking about the kids and their long hair. They're just as enraged about the length of the kids' hair as anything else, which sounds weird to us because that's something that became not a problem rather quickly. But the bitterness of a of a conservative policeman or a fireman or a construction worker it was you know the cliche in the sixties was the construction workers versus the hippies and. It sounds pretty dumb to us, but it was a big deal. It meant they didn't. It meant the kids didn't respect anything. It meant they didn't want to work. It meant they 
everything that I stand for as, an, as a conservative adult, they're saying is bullshit and a lie, and I'm a hypocrite, and I'm a racist, and I'm a sexist, and I'm a, I'm a pig. I mean, you listen to some of the rhetoric of some of the, you know, obviously as a New York City leading heart liberal from the old school, I'm, I'm, I'm pro-hippie and anti-reactionary sheriffs, but when the rhetoric from some of the six and they, and they call everyone pigs and you're like, that's not a good thing to say. That's just stupid. Like, who's going to listen to you if you call them a pig, like instead of a person? And one of the most telltale signs that someone is trying to dehumanize someone else is when they don't, when they think of an animal name for them or, a, or you know, you call someone a pig, then you can herd them and kill them like a pig. And if you call someone an animal, you know, these animals with long hair. Anyway, I, I think people forget how, how primitive and, and oppositional the national dialogue has often been in the past. Uh -huh. And so I think there's always room for humanity to creep in because there's no period that doesn't have its share of good plays, films, movies, etc. But I think that now the conversation is so, even though I think the roots are, are very serious and important, the conversation that we're hearing is so stupid and one note on both sides and so crude and primitive and blockheaded. I'm so sick of listening to it. And it's not that I don't think what it's on top of isn't very important, but it's just gotten to this moronic level. I mean, I feel like we're in an era that was formed by Andy Cohen, who I love as a person, but Real Housewives, I don't blame you, Andy, for <laughs> the current state of the world at all. But I feel like reality television, I feel like old movies formed the Reagan aesthetic, if you want to call it that. And then I think touchy-feely TV possibly informed the Clinton dynamic. Uh, and I think Trump is a product of reality TV. It's just supposed to be real, but it isn't. Like, it's fun to watch them tear each other's hair out. And it's it, it's not a great way to communicate or to relate to people. It's not that I think it's much worse. I can't tell. It might be worse, but it's so stupid. It takes such pride in its lack of civility and its lack of respect for the other side and the dismissiveness. I mean, you can't top the dismissive character of the woke rhetoric at its worst and the Trumpian rhetoric at its worst. It's just stupid and dismissive of entire swaths of human beings in a way that's unfortunately very familiar, but I think rather infantile if you compare it to other previous forms of social disputes. So, no, I think people with any sense, people who are not hidebound by the most primitive forms of their ideology, I think are often and almost usually receptive to anything that's that has a whiff of humanity about it or reflects the real experience. I think people are always responsive to that. I mean, like, you couldn't sell a family drama, a great family drama to a Russian revolutionary because to that, there's a, there's a, there's a box for that. It's bourgeois sentimentality. We don't do that here. So all the nuance, it's like listening to a different kind of music. Like you expect, you only want classical music. So when you hear rock music, it's just one, it's just loud and obnoxious and vice versa. You like rock music and when you hear classical music, it's just, you can't relate to it. It's just, just pleasant sounds that don't sound like anything to you. So I think when you try to show a human face to people who are locked into a very primitive ideology or dogmatism, then you don't get anywhere. But in among the population, there's always going to be people who are still human, thinking in human terms, having a human experience. And when you, when you do that in art, I think you get an immediate simpatico reaction. At least I hope you do. <laughs> I'm going to put that in a, in a strongly worded essay to the Times. <laughs> All right. I've kept you long enough. Last, 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 last question. What do you still want from the theater? More of everything that 
works well and less of the stuff that doesn't. But I don't think you can really get more of one if you don't have more of everything, mm. I suspect. I mean, I'd like to write more plays. I am working on more plays. I'd like to, I'm afraid I've been a little sated because I've done very well. And I've, well, I have two plays that have been underproduced that I'd really, really like to get back on. This is uh, uh, Starry Messenger, which we did a really nice production of. What a voice he was brilliant in it. I loved that, but it was short and it was a while ago. And I play Hold On To Me Darling that Neil Pepe directed at the Atlantic Theater. I'd like those plays to have more life. I didn't publish them, for instance, because I'm sloppy and lazy, but I was waiting for a commercial run, which is stupid. I should have just published them right away. Then they would be have a life now. My medieval play, I would like to fix a little bit and do that again. And then I have all these other plays I want to do. So I guess more of the same for myself. I directed two of those plays, Medieval Play and Starry Messenger, and I I'm such a bad administrator that there was a lot of pain which I inflicted on everyone and myself needlessly just because I'm disorganized and, and messy. And I, But creatively, I really enjoyed it, and I'd like to do more of that. There's a tremendous bias against writers directing their own work in the American theater, which is, makes no sense at all because most directors aren't so great, including most writers who direct. But I don't see that we're any worse than anybody else. <laughs> and I'd like to do more of that. And perhaps a really choice acting role, if someone wants to offer it to me, maybe. I, I'm not confident that that's something I'm, I would really be able to do. King Lear. Yeah. That would be, a, years. That would be a real disaster. Like, I would watch that. I, I wouldn't watch that. <laughs> you will never get a chance. <laughs> Kenny, I cannot wait for your next anything. Your next anything. It's been one of the great pleasures of my life to, oh. to watch your place and see your movies. Really is. Well, thanks, mate. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenneth Lonergan. Well, that was a serious and deep pleasure for me. Oh, and it felt rather like a... I don't know, it felt rather like an honour, too. Who is this great man? <laughs> As Matthew Broderick put it. But I, you know, I really think he is. I've spent a lifetime, you know, meeting, working with people, and uh, there are still some people that really get me, that really I, I find myself utterly enthralled to and sort of overawed by. And I have to say, Kenny is really one of them. I thought it was a real honour to hear how his amazing brain works and to have him sort of expatiate on all these 
sort of fascinating things about his life and the way his life intersects with his work. I find new Kenneth Lonergan plays or movies are, well, they're rare. You know, he doesn't write a lot. I think they're quite torturous for him to produce. But whenever they appear, I feel like they've been distilled from a lifetime of incredibly deep thinking and observation of the world around him. I just think he sort of pans for this very rare gold about who we are, uh, the essential truth of who we are as people. I think they're very funny, they're very painful, but they always strike me with the, the, the huge force of just recognising truth, recognising truth about human beings. And also, as the parent of teenagers, I loved what he said about, about adolescence you know, about what a, an unprecedented state of being alive it is to be a teenager. Watching his work over the years and then having this conversation really helped me understand my own kids better. And that feels like a great blessing. Oh, I'm so lucky to be doing this. I really, I really am. It's such a privilege. Anyway, Thank you, Kenny, for giving me that time. It was, you, 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 you certainly didn't need to do it. You have a thousand other things to do, not only getting ready for Nicholas Braun's succession finale party with, uh, with your wife, J. Smith Cameron. Anyway, next week, my guest is a, an extraordinary English polymath. He is the, uh, I'm going to miss things out here. He is the actor, comedian, writer, thinker, moral philosopher. Well, he's been very outspoken about politics in um, in my country, in the UK recently, and his absolutely incandescent anger at the Tory government. It has been just sort of thrilling for, for me to read and listen to. He is the co-creator of the new, the, the modern reboot of Sherlock. He is uh, an enormous creative driving force behind uh, Doctor Who, the modern reboot of Doctor Who. He is, he's taken another massive cultural icon, Dracula, and, and reinvigorated it for the 21st century. He is also on stage right now, as I, as I record this, at the National Theatre playing John Gielgud in Sam Mendes' production of Jack Thorne's play The Motive and the Cue. He's Mark Gatiss. He's just one of the most vibrant and remarkable artistic voices going around. And to talk to Mark in his dressing room at the National Theatre was such a privilege and a pleasure. Oh, <laughs> and he's incredibly funny. Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Uh, thanks, Louise Berry, for exec producing it. Thanks to Acast for podcast support. Thanks to um, my brilliant producer, Ben Backhouse, for everything you do to make this thing work. And sorry for my continued technical ineptitude. It's getting a little tiresome now. Iggy Cake, thank you for writing and playing the theme tune. Phoebe Cake, thanks for singing it. Thanks to the stage manager. Thank you to all of you for listening. I really hope you're enjoying the summer season. I've talked to some remarkably interesting, diverse figures from the theatre, from all corners of the theatre, and there's more to come. Okay, <clears throat> hope you can join me next week. 
for the brilliant Mark Atis. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here is stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He sits in the balcony. Seems plain, sad and funny. That's stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. He knows that there's no money. Being stage, stage door Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door Johnny. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.